With that, we're going to go to our study this morning. We're going to be in a book of Ephesians now. We're going to take a break for at least uh, three or four weeks, and then we'll go back to 1 Thessalonians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in Ephesians 4 for our time today and next week and the following week, Lord willing. Let me read our, our passage. We're going to do the first six verses this morning. And, and it's not really a, it's, it's an overview. We won't be digging into everything here. But I thought it was helpful to connect to the things that we'll be discussing in the family life groups, but also helpful in connection to the annual meeting because it touches on the church, elders, shepherds. Ephesians chapter four, verses one through six says this. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Father, we pray you would, by your spirit, help us receive your truth this morning, and we pray you would help us bear fruit today and in the week to come, and we pray you would open our eyes to the areas of our life we need to adjust as a result of your truth, we ask for Jesus' sake, Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, just a few weeks ago, at the start of the year, the Survey Center on American Life released their report from a study and a survey they did. It was called Faith After the Pandemic, How COVID-19 Changed American Religion. And every study has its downsides. You know, obviously there can be slants and all this, but it's just a survey they did basically aiming at church attendance and how people labeled themselves. One, one of the key points in the study was that COVID-19 led to an overall decline in religious attendance, but religious identity primarily, predominantly stayed the same. So that means that most people didn't change their religious label, they didn't change what they called themselves, but a lot of people simply stopped going to church. According to the report, before COVID-19, about one in four people claimed they never attended a religious service that just wasn't part of their life. And then in spring of 2022, that number jumped from one in three to one in four. So you go from 25% up to 33%. It shouldn't be a shock that the people most likely to stop attending church were those who before the pandemic said they seldom attended church. In addition to church attendance, they also looked at factors like education, marital status, uh, political affiliations, and age, so they can graph trends. The age group that had the lowest change among those who never attend church was age 65 and older. So before COVID-19, 20% of that age category said they never attended church, and after that number went up slightly to 23%. And that's impressive, considering that the elderly are the most at risk of complications. The age group that appeared to have the most people stop going to church 
were young adults ages 18 to 29. Before 2020, 30% of those surveyed said they never went to church. After that, it jumped up to 44%. That doesn't surprise me. We have a younger generation that's being raised to expend as little energy as possible. They prioritize convenience and expediency and at the same time expect more from others. I wanna do less and get more. Life is meant to be as easy as possible. That's the way you, our younger generations are being brought up to think about school, to think about food and having it arrive at your door, to think about the government. So why would they expect church to be any different? Should they even expect it to be any different? Well, if we're talking about the true church of Jesus Christ, the church that he purchased with his blood, then yes, people of all ages should expect something different than what the world has to offer. I think one of the most lacking components in the lives of professing Christians is a healthy understanding of ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the formal term for the study of the church. It answers questions like, what is the church? What is a local church? How is a church supposed to function? What should people expect from a church? And what should people be investing in the church? All these are what fall under ecclesiology. The people who decided they're no longer going to attend church, by and large, did so because they do not understand the nature of the church. No one says, I'm gonna get married and I hope I never see her again. Because they understand what marriage is. When we read or hear about trends in church attendance, that doesn't mean that COVID-19 changed our religion. Our religion does not change. But what happened was COVID-19 helped expose people's true religion. There were some who were unable to come. There were many who just got comfortable not coming. And the Bible speaks to that in a couple of places, just to call your attention to it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. John was speaking of those who pursued other doctrine. They abandoned the church. He says this, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And Paul said something similar to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, so it's focused on unity, them coming together. There were factions and people were breaking off and leaving the church. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So Paul understood that there would regularly be, for one reason or another, a purging in the church. The questions I gave you about the church and the nature of ecclesiology, those aren't questions we get to answer on our own according to our preferences. Questions about what the church is and how the church should be operating and what the church should be doing, those are questions the Bible has given us answers for. The New Testament gives us clear principles about how a church should operate. In the back of your bulletin, you see our church's mission statement. If we want to experience the fullness of Christ's love and express that love to our community for the glory of God, we need to know what a church is. 
We need to understand what God has told us about the church. And we've said this a lot. I think we all know this, but it's important to repeat. The church is not the building. We say it. I'm going to go drop something off at the church, but it's just a way of speaking. We want to make sure it doesn't get into our minds. The church is not the building. The church is not even this service. Oh, church starts at 1030 now. We know what we mean, but we need to make sure, again, we don't confuse that with the way church is used in the scriptures. The church is not the building. The church is not the service. The church is not our denomination. The church is, you guys know, the people. More specifically, the church is the people who have been regenerated. They're they're converted. They have surrendered their lives to Christ and are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. That's a a, a general description of the global church. For us, First Bilingual Baptist, as a local church, our church is the members. We're glad to have visitors. We're glad to have you with us. We encourage that. We want to see more people come. We want to see more people eventually become members because our members, like members of a body, those are the people who, from a human perspective, we're affirming in their faith. Yes, we're declaring that you're one of us. They're members of our body. And it's, it's, it's a tricky thing. People will leave our church for whatever reason, and sometimes they'll say, oh, I, li- I had to move, but First Bilingual Baptist, you know, that's always gonna be my church. And, and we understand the sentiment. We should love them. We know what they mean. But whatever local congregation they're now with, that's their church. We are First Bilingual Baptist, and as a local manifestation of the body of Christ, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to be operating Lots of passages you can use, lots of uh, books to turn to. First Timothy is a really good one. But Ephesians chapter 4 is a great place to see the heart of the church. Ephesians is broken up into six chapters. It wasn't originally written like that, but that's how it was broken up for us. The first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, focuses on Christian blessings. The second half focuses on Christian behavior. So you have the blessings and then the behavior that flows out of those blessings since we've been called, since we've been saved, since Christ has reconciled us, since we're in Christ, how should we behave? So there's blessing and there's behavior. Other people call it our position and then later our practice or our calling and then our conduct. Look at verse one of chapter four with me. Ephesians four, verse one. It's an introduction not just to this paragraph but to the rest of the letter He says, I, therefore, and he's thinking back on all the blessings he's described in chapters one, two, and three. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, and the you there is plural, I'm urging you as the church, the Ephesian church, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that calling is everything he's described in the first three chapters. We were called out of spiritual death into spiritual life. We were called out of darkness into light. We were called out of slavery to Satan and sin, and we're now servants of God. The Christian calling is redemption in Christ for the glory of God. In Christ, we're we're new creations, and we have a new purpose. Look back with me for a moment to chapter 3, verse 10. He's, he's in the beginning of the chapter, he's describing his ministry, his role as an apostle in preaching, in proclaiming the mystery of God. Verse 10 says he does it so that through the church, do you guys see that? Chapter 3, verse 10, 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. So God's character, God's heart, God's wisdom is, is showcased through the church. And in, in some ways, it's showcased within, its, within ourselves. It's showcased to the world. But Paul goes even higher. He says the wisdom of God is, is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God is making himself known, his glory, his power, his heart, all of that is being made known in the world and to the angels through the church. That's our calling. So now that I've become a new person in Christ, what am I supposed to do? Some churches say, you're a new creature, God's gonna bless you, you're a Christian now. You should expect checks to show up in your mail. Other people go the opposite. You gotta take a vow of poverty. You belong to God, you're here to serve. Give away everything you have. Other people say, you need to go serve God, you need to go to the other side of the world. Or like Paul, be a prisoner for the Lord. That, that may be part of what God's planning for you, but what, are you, what, is, what is mandated for every Christian? What difference is Christ supposed to make? How do you walk in a manner worthy? He's lifting it up. Walk in a manner worthy of this calling. Verses two and three, unpack it for us. This is the radical new life that you and I are called to live in Christ. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You remember Naaman in the Old Testament got leprosy? And, 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 and the prophet says, go wash and come out seven times, you'll be clean. And he said, no, that's ridiculous. We have, we have better rivers where I'm from. And the servant came and said, if he had told you to do something great, you would have gone to do it. But he's told you to do something so simple. And that happens sometimes. I came to Christ. I want to serve Christ. I'm going to be on fire for the Lord. And what does he want me to do? This is what he wants from you. We're God's representatives, and we do so in a way that's relational. The first effect of sin was relational. Remember, Adam walked with God before sin. After sin, he hid from God. There, there was a break. We became, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath, deserving eternal judgment. We're separated from God, alienated from him. Sin breaks relationships. It breaks our relationships with God and it breaks our relationships with one another. God shows up in the garden, Adam, where are you? Did you eat from the tree? And he says, yeah, it was my fault, I'm sorry. No, what does he say? The woman you gave me, she did it. And there goes the first husband and wife feud because of sin. Sin breaks relationships. The primary effect of sin, understand this, is relational. And so we have to understand that the primary effect of the gospel of Christ is relational. The gospel is not just about going to heaven one day, or it's not just about feeling better about yourself. The gospel removes sin, which is the barrier in a relationship, primarily in our relationship with God the Father. Christ came to forgive sin, to deal with sin, so that we would be reconciled to the Father. And then as brothers and sisters, we're now reconciled 
to one another. So if we're the people of God, if we are on earth as God's representatives, we are to demonstrate that by living in unity. And if we want to live in unity and in harmony with one another, we need to learn to respond to our differences and even to our sin. You've got here in verses two and three, five attributes, five words describing the appropriate response to one another, the the Christ-empowered response. Number one, Paul says we need humility. Humility, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord with all humility. And the word all is just describing the the effort, the, the, the comprehensiveness. There's no case where you could say, well, I don't have to be humble here. With all humility, and a good picture of humility is Philippians 2, 3 through 4. You can turn there, just go over one book. If you want to mark it, most of you know it, I think, or at least it sounds familiar to you. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Important verse to know, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And describes the humility of Christ in coming to earth and ultimately dying. Humility is putting the interests and the desires of others higher than your own. And it's a lofty idea. It's a beautiful picture. Oh, we love humble people, don't we? Because we like it when others humble themselves and give us what we want. But how quickly we leave and have some disagreement and we want to get our way. We want to pick where to eat after church. We want to pick what time to eat. We want to pick who we should visit. Think about the last disagreement you had. Could have been your spouse, could have been a coworker, someone in your family. What'd you fight over? It could have been a principal thing. You know, no, this is sin. We're not going to do that. More than likely, though, it was a preference thing. It's two people butting heads, unwilling to give the other person his or her way. In those arguments, we're thinking, look, if they would just come around and see things my way, this fight would be over. And that's true, it would. But it would also be over if you turned around and saw things their way, or at least allowed them to get their way. That's humility. I'm placing the interests of others above my own. I lay down my rights and my desires like Christ did, and I serve. Christ modeled that for his disciples in the upper room, right? He tied his waist with a towel, and he washed their feet while they were bickering over who was the greatest. That is the radical life of following Christ. There's humility. Second on the list, if you want to underline the word, is gentleness. Walk with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness is related to humility. It's also related to self-control. Gentleness is deliberately choosing not to assert your own authority or strength. Gentleness is the opposite of being a bully. A bully is trying to dominate, to intimidate. And there are aggressive bullies, and there are also victimized bullies. There are people on the other side, oh, oh, I'm sad, oh, don't do this, and you're using emotions to try to manipulate others. And neither of those responses, whether you're the aggressor or the, uh, the, the exaggerated victim, neither of those honor Christ. Gentleness is self-control. Jesus said, blessed are the gentle, 
James says, are you truly wise? If you're a wise man, a wise woman, wisdom will be made known through gentleness. Again, a beautiful idea. We love gentle people. But we need the power and the spirit of Christ to make that a reality in our own lives. So we need humility. We need gentleness. Third, he says, patience. Humility and gentleness with patience. The Greek word is, uh, you might have heard it, macrothumia. Macro means far. Thumia is, is anger, rage, ire. It used to be called long-suffering. I suffer long. We understand when kids come into the world and they want to eat, they cry. And then they get to two or three years old and when they want to eat, they tell you and if they don't get what they want to eat, when they want to eat it, they throw a tantrum. We come into this world not liking any discomfort, anything getting in our way. But maturity means we learn how to deal with things that we don't like or don't prefer. So when the room is cold, colder than you'd like, you you deal with it. And when the room is warmer than you'd like, you deal with it. You don't have a tantrum, you just go on. That's patience. Coming to Christ, joining the body of Christ does not mean people are going to stop doing things you don't like or stop doing the things that make your life inconvenient. Hey, it's lunchtime. Why are you still talking to people at church? Let's go. Following the footsteps of Christ means you're learning to model the patience of God. God puts up with our abundant sin and patiently averts his anger. If you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God, you need patience. Number four on the list, he does it in a, in, in a, a participle, but the word is forbearance. We need to be bearing with one another. The, the rough way to say it is you've got to put up with one another. We need to learn to tolerate those differences that seem strange to us because we're brothers and sisters. Those of you who grew up with siblings know siblings are weird. They're different. One likes video games, the other one likes stickers. One puts milk first, the other one puts his cereal first. One likes warm milk, one likes cold milk. These are just the differences of life. Where there is sin, bearing with someone means forgiving. But we also have to recognize that not every difference is caused by sin. We have different personalities, we have different experiences. We have different viewpoints. When I got married, my family had dinner around six or seven when it was dark. Dad got home, and then we got home, and dinner was made. I think you got, your dad came home a little earlier. So dinner was four or five. Is one sinful? No. Just a different way of, of doing things. If I go visit your house, you might have a different way of serving dinner. I like eating dinner, and if there's dessert, I'll have it pretty soon after. I got some salty flavor in my mouth, put something sweet there. My dad likes, no, I just had dinner. It's got to go down, he says. Give it like half an hour, and then we'll have dinner and then a cup of coffee. Is one of those better than the other? No, it's not. It's not sinful. They're just different. 
But it's the sin in my heart that when you and I disagree says you're wrong and I'm right. What's wrong with you? I have to learn to realize that those are just different ways of doing things. The problem is we do not like to be inconvenienced. And so we look for people who are the most like us so we can minimize the need to tolerate the differences. And that's not what God intended for the church. He intended us to be different. First Peter 4 says we're displaying the manifold grace of God, but we're united in love. And that's the fifth and final attribute that Paul mentions. Love is the summation of all these things. He says, bearing with one another in love. Everything's leading to love. Humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. These are all expressions of love. Church is not the place where we grit our teeth and say, how much longer do I have to put up with this person? We're supposed to be characterized by love. God is love. First, uh, that's, that's in 1 John, John 3, 16. In love, God sent Christ. Jesus said, it's by your love that the world will know that you're my disciples. That's not uh, worldly, emotional, sentimental love. It's biblical love, Christ's love. You can't say you love someone and then not be humble or gentle or patient or tolerant of them. It doesn't work that way. I love my wife. I just can't stand her. You can't say that. You can't say that. Because love is not an emotion. It's a commitment. I'm not loving her. If I can't stand her, I'm not showing her love. Love is not a one-time declaration. It's a commitment. That You guys know the most common Greek word for Christian love is agape. And there are various forms. There's the verb to love. There's the noun love. And there's the noun for people, beloved. I looked up this week. What book of the Bible uses some form of agape the most? Number one book uses it 63 times. And it's only five chapters. It's the epistle we know as 1 John. Five chapters, 63 times. Second place is the Gospel of John. That has 21 chapters. Uses it 55 times. And that's part of the reason why we refer to John as the Apostle of Love. One of the most famous passages in 1 John is 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8. Many of you know it. There's a song you sing. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. He's speaking of the church. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What's the point? Biblical love, Christ honoring, Christ exalting love and God go hand in hand. If you don't love, you don't really know God. But if you truly know God, your life will be characterized by love. To walk in a manner worthy of your calling means you love others, especially your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the culmination of that in a practical way is verse 3. Eager, that should be our attitude. There's a zeal here. That, that goes back to the word all. There's, a, there's an effort here. It's not automatic. But we do these things with the attitude of being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit that resides in me resides in every single person who belongs to Christ. And we are united in him through the bond of peace. 
That's referring to a peace that, that I think some translations say, the peace that binds us. That's the picture that God has for his church. We're united. And after the attributes of verses two and three, Paul moves on to the foundation for that command. This is where we're gonna end our time today. Why does Paul call us to humility and patience and gentleness and tolerance and love? Why does that matter? Because that's what showcases our unity in Christ. As a people of God, we are a community. That, that's what membership in a church means. You're a member at Costco, you're a member at the gym. You go to Costco, you go to the gym, you might even see the same people there. You might even say hi, but they're not your family in the way that God intended his church to be a family. The love of God produces a unity. It would make no sense to say, well, I love the people at church. I'm just not united to them. That would be a contradiction. Unity has two components. One is spiritual. There is a unity of status. There's a unity of position. There's an eternal reality. We are united in Christ. But there's also the practical aspect of unity, and that means we need to demonstrate it. We need to express it. We need to celebrate it. Think of a couple that's been married for 20 years, and they start arguing more, and they say to someone, you know, we're just not working together anymore. We, we can't agree on anything. We're always fighting. Does that mean they're no longer united? Well, in one sense, no. If they're still married, they're united. They're, they're united positionally. They're united by the vows they took before the Lord. But in another sense, what they're missing, what they're lacking in, is the practical expression of that unity. They're not living out, practically, the spiritual reality of their marriage. Does that make sense? Positional unity, practical unity. So look at Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6 with me. He's already talked about the practical side. That's verses 2 and 3. But here's the, the thing behind it. Here's the motivation for it. And I'm going to give you a question up front, just a Bible study question. What's the key word? I'm going to read three verses. You tell me what the key word is in these verses. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Paul says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What's the key word there? One. It shouldn't be that hard. I'm not going to dig into the phrases today, but the main point is obvious. We're called to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because we are united in Christ we are one. That was, that was Jesus' prayer in, in John 17, that they may be one. We're one body. We're part of the same family. We're, we're part of one body. We're indwelt by one spirit. We're living with one hope. We're serving one Lord. We're believing one faith. We're going, we all went through one baptism, all for the glory of the one God and Father. And so we need to be one. We need to be united. We are united spiritually, positionally, but we need to be united practically. Nothing in that list has anything to do with where you were born. Nothing in that list has anything to do with what language you speak, how many kids you have, 
what team you prefer, what your favorite color is. That's not the unity of the church. We're not united because we all happen to be brown and speak English or Spanish. That's not what you know. We're not united in our love of coffee or sweet bread or donuts or whatever. All that is the world unites around those common things. You find someone who likes the same team you like, and there's a brotherhood there. That's, that's world. That's not supernatural. What is supernatural is people with all kinds of differences coming together for something out of this world, and that is a person, Jesus Christ. He has united us. We're united in our love for him. We're united in our love and commitment to his word. We're united in our desire to see others come to know him. And we're united in our love for the glory of God as we recognize his supreme authority. That's the end of verse six. He is over all and through all. And then I believe maybe more applied here to the church, he's in all, he's in all events, but in the church, he's in every single person. Every single person who belongs to him through Jesus Christ is indwelt by his spirit. And what that means is the expression of verses two and three, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, forbearance, love, What you do in that regard to someone else is the way you respond to Christ who dwells in them. Remember Saul on the road to Damascus, blinded, knocked off his horse, and Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? No. Why are you persecuting me? Because Christ identifies with his church. And then later, or earlier, I'm sorry, in Matthew 25, but speaking of the final day, when Christ says, speaking of someone who, who fed the hungry or gave something to drink to the thirsty or someone ministering to someone who's sick or alone, Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, Jesus says, you did it to me. Jesus identifies with his church because he dwells within each member of his church. That's God's design for the church. It's not intended to be a club that you get to choose when you go. It's designed to be a community eternally purchased for and united by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's a unity that's intended to be seen every day on Sundays when we gather and then throughout the week, whether it's FLG or just in the course of your life, this is my spiritual family. We are one because we are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to redefine what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And so we're grateful for these simple but important reminders. And it takes your spirit, it takes your strength to put these things into practice. We pray you would help us see our brothers and our sisters as the body of Christ, not just someone we have disagreement with, but someone we're called to respond to in the love of Christ. We pray that that love and that unity would be represented in our marriages. We pray that it would be growing among our families, but also as a church. So that those outside 
the church would see us like Christ said and through our love, not sentimental only, but in action, in laying down privileges and expectations, they would know we belong to Christ who laid down his life for the sheep. Help us, Lord. Help us reorient the way we we see things. And we pray you would make our church here a brighter light for the glory of Christ as people hear and see the love that we have for one another. We ask for the glory of Christ. Amen.